Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. Um, you know, the other day, Jess and I were invited to participate in a church health panel. So the backstory is our seminary and our denomination kind of went together, created a, a unique uh, learning uh, institution, you could say it's it's the uh, Institute of Church Leadership or ICL, and they they give different classes, courses uh, over different semesters, and you can earn certificates and, and things like that. The Institute of Church Leadership. Well, um, one of their classes is on church health. It's the end of end of the semester, and uh, Jess and I, uh, PMC, was was highlighted to to join in this class and be able to speak about church health. We were a part of a, a, a panel. And so we got to share with the students, the class, uh, just just wisdom uh, that, that we have gained as, as church leaders. Um, what, what does church health look like? Um, and let me just tell you, being able to think about who we are as a church and just our story here in Plymouth Meeting, Jess and I, both have feelings of gratitude and fortitude. And really, I just invite you uh, to join with us to just really celebrate who we have become over the last couple of years as a church. You know, when Jess and I arrived here about six years ago, some of the language that was used was, I'll just say, you know, it, it, it didn't it didn't sound good. We heard things like, oh, this church will be closing its doors in three to five years. Um, and, you know, this church really needed a vision. And that was some of the language that we were hearing just a few short years ago. Um, now, I'm sure all of us, for, for those who, who have been tracking with Plymouth Meeting Church for a while, we all could probably share stories over the last couple of years and talk about all the things we've experienced and maybe through Zoom calls or different different things we've we've done, ups and downs, our mistakes, our triumphs. And, you know, I've certainly made mistakes and missteps and oversteps. And by the grace of God, I have learned so much. And also, you know, this church, this congregation is my first full-time pastorate. So have you ever thought, about how serving this congregation has shaped and influenced me. You know, as as Jess and I get plugged into Plymouth Meeting and all of that, like, well, well Plymouth Meeting Church is, is a part of our story, you know? So it's just really, it's wild and interesting and amazing to think about all of these things. And, you know, when we, when we talk about church health, like last uh, Tuesday, on this church health panel, um, it wasn't theoretical. Like we got to speak from a place of experience. There's some really good lessons that we have learned over the last couple of years. And Jess and I being able to reflect and gather our thoughts on, on what it means to do congregational ministry in this day and age, you know, after kind of going through that process, we felt encouraged by our experiences. But, you know, we're, we're able to kind of say, and this is, this is you know, we, we stand on this, you know, it's not us, 
it's totally God. And so I don't want to hang out with like some of the hard times too much. Uh, but for the sake of the sermon, I do want to communicate that, yes, in our experiences, there has been hard times and feelings of being unprepared, feelings of being inadequate, um, being dry, drained out, uh, kind of searching for joy. There, there's been times of concern and stress and tiredness. Absolutely. We've had questions of like, okay, what are we doing here? Are we on track? Are we on the road? Are we driving? Are we hovering? Are we, <laughs> are we idling? Uh, what are we supposed to be doing here? But here's the thing. Being able to reflect on all of this, this whole story, all of the beauty and the joy and the hard times that, that come with congregational ministry, the bottom line is this. God doesn't waste our experiences. God works with us. God works through us. Sometimes he'll, he'll work around us too. Excuse me. God isn't afraid of the obstacles that we might put in our way. And here's the thing. I, I believe that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And I know that he is with us. He is before us. He is around us. He's in us. And it's amazing. I believe that. And so as we are invited to be the church, as we are invited to do church, I say, absolutely, we can move forward, warts and all, because his grace is sufficient for us. And so we choose to follow Jesus. As long as Plymouth Meeting Church is called to be Plymouth Meeting Church, we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to choose hope, which leads us to uh, today's sermon. Uh, well, actually, last week we did a quiet launch into a new sermon series called Choose Hope. Choose Hope. It's just a string of messages here that are just uh, going to be um, here for us to encourage us to desire the plans and the future that, that God has for us, especially when you know, we might be in some hard times, some dark times when we feel like we've made some mistakes and we're kind of questioning, hey, are we on the right path? It's out of our faith today in Christ, we can choose hope for tomorrow. We're going to be a church that, that chooses hope. And so today we're getting into a story about Sarai and Hagar, a story that shows God is not afraid of the obstacles that we might put in our own way. So let me say a, a, a prayer for us and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, quiet our minds and our hearts so that we can hear you so directly. May we listen deeply for your voice today. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 16. And there's a, a story in Genesis chap, chapter 16. That's, that's what we're, we're digging into today. Um, and so we have this, this couple, Abram and Sarai. They are God's chosen family. God called them. He elected them. Um, and he makes a covenant with them. Uh, God promises uh, to, to bring... Um, 
that um, Abram and Sarai are going to have a, a big family, a, a great nation. God promises them a child, and, and he, he covenants with them. And it's, it's this amazing covenant. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing if you think about it. Uh, Abram and, and Sarai, they're, they're an elderly couple, but God picks them and says, you two are going to be uh, mom and dad to many. And if we want to talk about offspring, just go ahead and, and look at the stars. Try to count the stars. Your, your kids are going to be numerous, okay? But here's the thing. They are elderly. They have no kids. And, you know, Sarai, she's, she's 76 years old, and about 76, and she's barren, all right? Now, Su Susan Nidich, she's a scholar, she points out, uh, that in ancient, in the ancient Near East, both barrenness and fertility were ascribed to God. Okay, so in the ancient mindset, there's a connection between uh, babies and God's favor. All right, so so barrenness would be a sign of of disfavor. Now, for us today, we certainly know how babies are made, and, and you know, if you're not able to have kids, whether, you know, it's, you know, the, you know, the female part or, or the male part in, in, in you know, in, in this situation, um, we know not be, being able to have kids, um, that's, that's not a sign that, that God is displeased with you. Um, but with, with that said, today, you know, absolutely sure, I believe, you know, God can open wombs or God can raise sperm counts or, you know, whatever the case may be. You know, God certainly can do miracles and bring about pregnancies. Um, but, you know, um, for, for Sarai, um, she's barren and there is this cultural pressure that, you know, God might be upset with her. And so she's probably feeling inadequate. She might be just dealing with this ongoing pain that, yeah, she's, she's never had kids yet. You know what's what's going on there and now there's this promise that you know God says hey I'm calling you to be a mother uh, where's this baby at okay so now let me introduce you to Hagar um, Sarah owns Hagar yes there's slavery in the story that and, and talking about slavery is beyond the scope of today's message but Hagar is Sarai's slave Hagar is an Egyptian, an outsider, and yes, owned owned by by her mistress Sarai. And and Sarai, she she comes up with a solution. She says to her husband, "Okay, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, you know, go be with my slave and perhaps, you know, through her I can build a family." All right, since God isn't helping me out, maybe I can help myself. This baby really needs to happen. Let's try to do it through my slave. And so before we judge Sarai, you know, before we say, like, this is a, a misstep, you know, let's, let's be real. Sometimes the solutions that, that we come up with aren't always on point, okay? Sometimes the things that we get in our head, they you know they're they're not exactly dialed in, or perhaps they're they're not uh, they're they're not the the best ideas out there. All right, so let's just be real. Sometimes we don't have the best 
uh, intentions or uh, or perhaps we might have good intentions but it's not the best idea etc cetera, etc cetera. sometimes yeah there's there's a lot going on here that's what I'm trying to say there's a lot going on here uh, res researchers tell us that especially for upper-class women uh, during this time time period um, having a child through a surrogate was a legitimate practice that you could do so Hagar uh, would almost would, would be like a surrogate womb, okay? And, and, and so by the works of Sarai, a substitute is going to be found. You know, to save her from disgrace, um, Hagar is the substitute. And Abram, he goes along with, with all of this. And so Hagar becomes Abram's wife. Wife, not a concubine, but an actual wife. The Hebrew language has its own word for concubine. It's not used here. Hagar becomes a wife, and then, as as the story goes, it, it seems like um, just things happen really quickly. Hagar becomes pregnant. All right. Now here's where the story turns a little bit. It's a little a little spicy here. Um, Hagar. Knowing that she's pregnant, she treats Sarai with contempt. Sarai already has these cultural forces of dishonor and disgrace going on, and now it's being channeled through Hagar directly. You know, Hagar, she's, she's pregnant with Abram's child, and she's treating Sarai with contempt. Now, Hagar's slavery, perhaps that context needs to be considered here. Um, pregnant with Abram's child, perhaps this is just all too easy to kind of be flashy about it and uh, to, to, to bring it to the level of just disrespecting Sarai. So let's just kind of pause here. When things seem to be happening well in our lives, in our ministries, there can be this danger of treating others as if they're inferior. Okay, that that if if your side of things seems to be going well and if there's another side that's not going well, sometimes we might be disgusted a little bit. We we uh, we we can be um, we can be mean and we we treat as if we're superior, they're inferior. Bigger, faster, stronger, easier, richer doesn't mean you're better. doesn't mean superior. And so you and I, we want to be aware of the temptations to parade about that says, hey, look at me, I'm better than you. Our culture today is already oversaturated with comparison, with flaunting, and many people are put down or put out because of it. There is a rift now in Abram's camp. Hagar is hurting Sarai. Sarai becomes furious. All right, now, Sarai's fury is not directed at Hagar, but she goes to Abram and she says, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that I was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Meaning, okay, may God decide who's right here in this situation. So in response, Abram doesn't even use Hagar's name. He says, 
your slave is in your power. Do whatever, do whatever you want with her. Okay, Abram excuses his responsibility. She's your slave, you decide. So what will Sarai do? What do you think? What will Sarai do? Well, she does something that is all too common, all too normal. She begins to mistreat Hagar. And so this relationship between Sarai and Hagar it becomes oppressive. Sarai brings affliction, mistreatment. We don't know what it kind of looks like or how long it lasted, but we know it was bad. Was it physical? Was it verbal? We don't know. So it's a classic case of hurting people hurt people. And Hagar was mistreated so badly that she ran away from camp. So this is where we're at. God said that this family is going to have an heir. Sarah gets impatient, comes up with her own solution. Fast forward, if Hagar's baby really is the heir, well, Hagar is running away into the wilderness. Uh, that's where we're at right now. And I'm not sure how long Hagar was, was away, um, how far she got, but on the way out, a place called Shur, which I believe is on the way back to Egypt, we find Hagar sitting by a spring in the wilderness. And then something incredible happens. An angel of God finds her. The angel of the Lord shows up, speaks to Hagar and says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, these questions are both literal and existential, aren't they? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? Right? Well, Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And then, as the Hebrew text kind of lays it out, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, gives three thoughtful responses. Okay, the first one is this. Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then the angel says, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too numerous to count. And then the angel of the Lord says, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. So essentially, go back and submit. You will be the mother of many. Name your boy Ishmael, which means God hears. And so this is the first angelic annunciation in the Bible. And guess what? It's given to an outsider. It's given to the other woman, the Egyptian with a pagan background. But you know, Hagar's response is pretty remarkable. Even though she has this Egyptian background and might have, you know, Egyptian cult religion um, still in her head and, and all of that, she she knows enough that she's talking to to God, um, and 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 she it, she's talking to the angel of, of God, but it's 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 like she's speaking to God, and 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 she names the Lord, she names the Lord. You are El Roy. And in this place, I've actually seen the one who sees me. El Roy, meaning 
the God who sees. The God who sees. And you know, Hagar is the only person in the Bible to name God. And this water well where all this is happening, it's named the well of him that lives and sees me. And isn't that true? God is alive. God is the living one who sees. God sees our situations. God sees our predicaments. God sees all the pickles that we get ourselves in. And God sees through our solutions as well. God sees you. He sees you in your pain. He sees us on on the road to death. And that's why he shows up to save the world through Jesus and bring life. You know, Sarai, she, she worked up a solution. She wanted to save herself from her plight and she needed a substitution. And the same applies to us. We too, we need a substitution. We need something or someone to save us from our plight of sin. But you know, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot work our way back to God. We can't work our way out of the ditch. What we need is God to be himself. We need God, the living God who hears us, the living God who sees us. We need God to show up and be our substitute. And being a Christian, it means acknowledging that we're in a bad situation because of sin and sin's effects. It means we know that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn or work our way back to God. We cannot drum up solutions on our own. And the good news is this, we believe by unmerited favor. We say yes to Jesus and we believe in him. We believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that he and he alone, he is our solution. Jesus is our substitute. And so Hagar, she does return to camp. She gives birth to Ishmael. And at age 86, Abram has a newborn. And for now, Ishmael seems to be the promised child. Okay, so what can we take away from this? There's a commentator, scholar named John Walton. And he points out that the solutions that we come up with well, they actually just might be obstacles that God will, ha- will have to just work through or work around. Because Sarai's plan, her solution, it ended up actually just being an obstacle. Because Ishmael is not the son that God promised. It's, it's not in our story. Uh, we'll actually take a look at it next week. But a little boy named Isaac is actually to come. All right? But for today's lesson, you know, God isn't afraid of the obstacles that we put in our way. So think back in your own life. Were there decisions that you made? Maybe you're like, they probably weren't the best choices, probably not the best, uh, you know, decisions there. But you know what? In hindsight, you know that God worked things out. Today's lesson teaches us that the solutions and plans that we come up with, it doesn't, like, 
The things that we do are our solutions, quote unquote, doesn't automatically mean that God disapproves them. It just means that God might have to work through them and or around them. John Walton writes, with God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. So the big point today is this, God doesn't waste our experiences. And as we look back and reflect, yes, there's going to be be times of struggle, times of, of pain and weakness. We're going to have wounds. But when you look back, take Jesus with you. And Jesus says to us, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so when we see decisions made in the Bible, Sometimes as the reader, it's so easy to, you know, and, you know, we're quick to judge, oh, that was a good decision, bad decision. But, you know, sometimes the Bible doesn't give us that information. The Bible doesn't let us know if it was right or wrong. Okay, what I want you to see, I want you to see God as the God who works things out. Maybe kind of to to shift a little bit here, you know, spin this binary thinking of are we on track or off track? Are, are we on the road or are we off-roading? That might not be the best perspective. That might not be the best approach. Instead of seeing ourselves or others as on or off, what if our perspective was this? What if we are on or on the way? Because some, some, sometimes we, we do go off-roading. Sometimes we take decisions that then require us to take the long way around. Or, you know, we we have detours. Some of us are doing circles out there. But, you know, when we see a brother or sister off-roading, some of their decisions and solutions might not be the best. But in maturity, with, with grace and truth in your heart, you know, you're there for them. You know, be their their prayer partner, their prayer warrior. Be their encourager. Be a person who shares faith, hope, and love with them. Why? Because, yes, they might be off-roading, but we believe that God is sovereign. And in his providence, he's not wasting our experiences. I want to tell a quick story here. When Jess and I were newlyweds, um, I had one semester done with with seminary. Jess still had one semester to go with with her undergrad. And essentially, I was laid off from my job. And we decided to move uh, so that I could get a job and and sell water treatment systems. All right. Um, Looking back, I don't know if that was the best decision. But, you know, what else was I supposed to do? You know, maybe maybe move in with uh, my in-laws or my parents or, you know, um, maybe I should have just not moved but just tried to find a different job. It's tough looking back. You know, we had some really hard decisions to make, you know, tough choices. But also, God doesn't say to me, Cameron, that was a mistake, you know. God's a God who says, I won't 
waste your experiences, okay? And did you notice in our story, not once does God say Ishmael is a mistake. And next week, we're going to continue this story, so I invite you to come back next week. But here at the end, I I just want to circle back to verse 8 in chapter 16. Here at the end, these questions that the angel asks, they're just so powerful for us to consider. Where did you come from? Where are you going? Where did you come from? Where are you going? Or better, better yet, in your faith walk, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? As a church, who are we becoming? And so today's encouragement, the good news, the the benediction, the good word that I want to share with you is this. You can move forward. We can move forward, even in our tangles, because God's grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's more than enough. And we can choose hope. And this is what I want you to think about this week. This is what I want you to take away, is that you can hope in God. God says you're not defeated in your weakness. You're not defeated in your wounds. You're not defeated in your mistakes, your hardships, your troubles, persecutions. You can hope in God, the living God. You can find God's power, God's full expression of his power and strength in your fragile humanness. So this week, this Tuesday, this Thursday, I want you to think about this. When, when it might be fuzzy, it might be foggy, you're not seeing clearly, I reassure you today that you can choose hope in the living God who hears us, who sees us. That's who he is. That's our God. That's what we have for today. Thank you, church. Be blessed.